All right, well, hello again. If you have a Bible, let me encourage you to grab it and make your way to 2 Samuel chapter 23. It's on page 275 in the black hardback Bibles around you. So if you don't have a Bible with you, grab one of those and open up to page 275. If you don't own a Bible or you've lost it or something, take one of those home with you. It is our gift to you. We've got plenty, so take it home with you, especially if you'll read it. Uh, while you are getting to page 275 or to second, and to 2 Samuel 23, how many of you have heard the phrase, famous last words? Right, most of us have probably heard the phrase, and the, the phrase <clears throat> excuse me, is something that we use a lot of times to point out the recklessness of an uh, assertion's safety or certainty. And so using it in that kind of sarcastic way probably began with the U.S. Civil War General John Sedgwick, who said they couldn't hit an elephant from that distance, and immediately he was picked off by a sniper. So that's probably where it began, you know, famous last words. And so we, we kind of have that kind of understanding, but there are truly some famous last words. And so you think about um, Shakespeare. He says that Julius Caesar's famous last words are what? Et tu, Brute, right? You think about uh, Patrick Henry. He says, I regret that I have but one life to give for my country. You think about Todd Beamer, 9-11. He says, let's roll. And as I was looking into this, excuse me, this week, I was floored when I came to Leonardo da Vinci's last words. Here's what he said. He says, I have offended God and mankind because my work did not reach the quality it should have. And I read that and I said, praise God, he's never seen my work. (laughs) Right? I mean, good night, Leonardo da Vinci. I mean, I felt about that tall. Praise the Lord for his grace. But as we come to chapter 23 in Samuel today, this is what we find. We find the last words of David. And they may not be as famous as maybe they should be, but I want us to take note of them today and make them famous in our own hearts because they fill us with hope. If we will see the depths of what he's talking about, they can't help but fill us with hope because David's last words aren't about the past. They look forward. And they look forward to the coming kingdom of the forever king, the one in David's line, the coming kingdom of the Messiah, a kingdom that was inaugurated with the first advent of Jesus 2,000 years ago, and that will be consummated when he cracks the skies and comes again. And it's to that day and to the, the certainty and the eternality and the perfection of that kingdom that David speaks to us in 2 Samuel chapter 23. And the author recorded this section here to give us hope. To fill us with a hope that the perfect kingdom, that, that David's kingdom was to make us long for because it wasn't perfect. That it will come. That it's a certainty. And it will be better than our wildest dreams. And so to 
to understand the kingdom properly, we kind of need to nuance what we mean by kingdom for just a second. And thank you. I cannot get this cleared. I'm sorry. <clears throat> Let's see if that'll help. Thank you, Kent. But let's nuance what we mean by kingdom for just a second. Because there's many senses in which we can use that word. And there's many senses in which it's used in Scripture. And so, for only, you know, in one sense of the word, God's kingdom is over all things, right? He's over all things. He rules all things. Theologically, this is called the kingdom of God's power. I would give it to you in the Latin, but I do not want to... Make Da Vinci mad at me for butchering it. But it's the kingdom of God's power, right? This is God's rule. This is dominion over all creation. Because the Bible is crystal clear. He orders the affairs of nations. He sets the, the, the destinies of individuals. Psalm 115 verse 3 is clear. Our God is in heaven. He does whatever he pleases. He is God. And so there's the kingdom of God's power, but there's also this present kingdom of grace where Christ rules as the head of his church. And Christ's rule over this kingdom is based upon his redemptive work. And so no one is a citizen of this kingdom by virtue of their humanity. Only the redeemed have the privilege and honor of being part of this kingdom. And so you become a part of this kingdom by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And so it's by repentance and faith in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, that you're granted citizenship into this kingdom. And it's a spiritual kingdom, so there's no flag. There's no world headquarters. There's no post office box. But in fragments, it does become visible every Sunday, every Lord's Day, as little embassies of the kingdom gather together to hear the word preached and to observe the ordinances. And so you've got God's kingdom of power, you've got God's kingdom of grace. These two understandings will one day be merged into a visible and absolute kingdom when Christ returns and puts an end to sin, puts an end to death, makes everything that's gone wrong right again, right? When he restores the world back to what it's supposed to be. Eden. Paradise. It's like that's the story of the Bible. Four acts, creation. Right? And then fall. This is when sin enters the world. Everything's broken. Act 3. Redemption. That's what's been happening ever since Genesis 3. God working to redeem the world back to Himself based upon the life, death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus Christ. So you've got creation, you've got fall, you've got redemption, and then you have this coming fourth act, restoration. When everything that's gone wrong is made right. A return to Eden. A return to paradise. And it's this aspect of the kingdom that David is pointing us to. Both in his life and in the very words he uses here in chapter 23. And he's going to tell us three specific things about this kingdom. Alright, I'll go ahead and give them to you. These are your notes. He's going to tell us, number one, that the kingdom is certain. There is no question. He's going to tell us, number two, that the kingdom is perfect. And he's going to tell us, number three, that the kingdom is exclusive. Citizenship in the kingdom is exclusive. 
And so let's read this oracle together, and then we'll make our way through it. So page 275, 2 Samuel 23. Verse 1. Now these are the last words of David. All right, last words recorded. The oracle of David, the son of Jesse. The oracle of the man who was raised on high. The anointed of the God of Jacob. The sweet psalmist of Israel. The spirit of the Lord speaks by me. His word is on my tongue. The God of Israel has spoken. The rock of Israel has said to me. When one rules justly over men. Ruling in the fear of God. He dawns on them like the morning light. Like the sun shining forth on a cloudless morning. Like rain that makes grass to sprout from the earth. For does not my house... Stand so with God. For he has made with me an everlasting covenant. Ordered in all things and secure. For will he not cause to prosper all my help and my desire? But worthless men are like thorns that are thrown away. For they cannot be taken with the hand. But the man who touches them arms himself with iron. And the shaft of a spear. And they are utterly consumed with fire. And so as we get into this, as we first start reading this, David makes us wait a minute before he actually gets to the prophecy in verses 3 and 4. Before that, he gives us this extended introduction. Because the text is being very, very deliberate here. It's not in a particular hurry to, to get to it. It's trying to help us as the readers know how we are to regard what is about to be introduced. That this message that is coming is a divine message from David. It is an oracle. And so it's God who is going to be speaking, not David. He's going to speak through David, but it is God who is being speaking. So this is not a piece of human insight, but a clip of divine decree. Okay, it's the very word of God. And if it's the word of God, then it's a sure word. It can be depended upon. Because it's from God and he does not lie. And so that's the first thing we can mark about this kingdom. That it is certain. All right, so number one again, the kingdom is certain. Like God is going to fix the world. He's been working at it for millennia. I mean, as you read through the long introduction here, it just pops up reminders to us of what God has been doing. When you look back at it, the oracle of David, the son of Jesse, right? The oracle of the man who was raised on high. So you remember Samuel, how Samuel went to Jesse He's got all these strong sons. It's not that one. It's not that. Oh, it's the runt. That's the one. He raised him. He took him from the pastures. He anointed him. All right. That's the next. The anointed of the God of Jacob. So Samuel anointed him. And this is all like flowing out of the promise to Jacob's grandfather, Abraham. 
How he had promised him thousands, hundreds of years earlier that he was going to get God's people who had rebelled against him and who had been kicked out of the Garden of Eden. He was going to get God's people and he was going to get them back in God's place under God's rule and blessing. Right? That's the promise. And that's what you originally had in Eden. And this is where it's going. I mean, think about this with me. We talked about this when we were in 2 Samuel 7. In Eden, you have the kingdom pattern established. God's people, Adam and Eve, in God's place, the Garden of Eden, under God's rule and blessing. Right? Sin breaks that. They're kicked out. And so then God comes to Abraham and makes a promise. I'm going to get that back. So you have the kingdom pattern established. With Abraham, you have the kingdom promised. God promises, I'm going to get my people and I'm going to get them back in my place under my rule and blessing. My place being future new heavens, new earth, but there's going to be a temporary fulfillment. There's going to be a foreshadowing of that and that's with David. So you have the kingdom foreshadowed and an initial fulfillment of God's people in God's place, the promised land, under God's rule and blessing. Jesus comes to earth and you have the kingdom at hand. Because he is God's people. He is God's place. He is God's rule and blessing. And when he returns, we'll have the kingdom consummated in the finality of God's people in God's place under God's rule and blessing. New heavens, new earth, all believers. And the blessing is that we are with Christ. That's the ultimate fulfillment. And so verse 2 here, when we hear that it is the Spirit of the Lord who is speaking... The God of Israel, the rock of Israel. We know that this is the word of God. And so since it's God's word, it means it's certain. David fires after this same thought in verse 5 when he talks about, For does not my house stand so with God? For he has made with me an everlasting covenant like this has already been forged he's going to do these things i mean just listen to that i'm going to comp- i'm going to read second samuel 7 verse 5 again for does not my house stand so with god for he has made with me an everlasting covenant now listen when i flip back to second samuel chapter 7 where this covenant is established listen to the language Now, therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, this is what Nathan, the prophet, is supposed to say. And here it is. Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should be prince over my people Israel. And I have been with you wherever you went and have cut off all your enemies from before you. And I will make for you a great name, like the name of the great ones of the earth. Same thing he said to Abraham. And I will appoint a place for my people, Israel, and will plant them so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. There's initial fulfillment with David's kingdom, but this is looking forward. And violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly from the time that I appointed judges over my people, Israel. And I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. This is a kingdom. It's not bricks and mortar. Will make you a house 
When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will rise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Down to verse 16. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. Friends, God keeps his word. He promised to Abraham. He re-promised to David. He's going to bring it about. It is a certainty. Nothing can stop him. And as we sang really fast, actually, God moves in mysterious ways. He does. And we may not understand why he's doing certain things all the time. But rest assured, his word and his kingdom are certain. Nothing can stay his hand. He is God. He's in the heavens and he does whatever he pleases. And so we have a guaranteed hope if you are in Christ. You do not live in a land of wishful thinking, hoping for the mere positive outcome of your circumstances. You have a hope that is certain regardless of your circumstances because it's kept in heaven for you by God. And so take hope in that. Take hope that the kingdom is certain and it's coming. All right? But not only is it certain, it's also perfect. It is perfect. Look at verse 3 here in this oracle of David. The God of Israel has spoken. The rock of Israel has said to me. All right? So here finally comes the prophecy. Here comes what God has said. When one rules justly over men, ruling in the fear of God, he dawns on them like the morning light, like the sun shining forth on a cloudless morning, like rain that makes grass to sprout from the earth. For does not my house, there's the word again, stand so with God, for he has made it with me an everlasting covenant ordered in all things and secure. And so what David is saying here is that there is coming a universal ruler. Look at verse 3 again. When one rules justly over men, ruling in the fear of God. All right, so there's one who will rule. And he will be righteous. He will rule justly. He will rule perfectly. He will be fear, filled with the fear and the awe and the reverence of God. And look at how his rule is described then in verse 4. It's likened to the brilliance of the sun rising on a cloudless morning. How many of you have ever seen a sunrise over the ocean? How many of you have ever seen a sunrise in the mountains? You can travel to these places and see sunrises. This is what God... like. This is what Christ's rule is going to feel like, this beautiful brilliance. It's like the sun's warmth joined with the rain, bringing forth abundant and lush growth. It's a picture of blessing and life and freshness in terms, when you think of lushness and growth and foliage, you think Genesis 1. Creation, again. This is a restoration that's coming. 
And David's talking about Jesus here. Jesus is the one who rules righteously. He's the one who will rule forever in the fear of the Lord, who will bring the light of the new creation in his coming, who will cause land to flourish like a garden, and who takes up, verse 7, armor and spear against the throne. And he'll be a ruler unlike anything we've ever seen. He will cause his subjects to be refreshed and renewed and nurtured. See, all we know in this age are leaders who either elected or imposed are immoral, who are corrupt, who are oppressive, who are power-grabbing. And they often decimate rather than relieve their people. I mean, even as I was praying in the pastoral prayer, we were talking about Nigeria. And the people that were killed prior to the elections. We're talking about Venezuela and all that's going on there. Even in our own country, politicians primarily concerned about themselves, not the flourishing of citizens. It's on both sides of the aisle. But Christ's rule will be wholly different. It will renew, it will refresh, it will fill with joy. We will rejoice over that government. That monarchy with a perfect king. And so let this stark contrast between what we see now and what we see promised only stir to whet your appetite for that kingdom and particularly the king who is to come with its perfection and unending joy with no sin, no death, no politicians, no sorrow, no mourning, no pain. Where each day is better than the one before. This is the perfection of the kingdom to come. Endless glory and joy. Where our king dawns on us like the morning light. Like the sun shining forth on a cloudless morning. Like rain that makes grass to sprout from the earth. Friends, this kingdom is certain. And this kingdom is perfect. But not everyone wants to come to this kingdom. Some don't want a part of this righteous ruler's reign. The Bible tells us in verse 6 here, it describes them as worthless men. And it says, if the messianic king is like light in verse 4, they are like thorns in verse 6. It tells us if he brings freshness, they bring pain. And they will be excluded from the regime that they despise. They will be tossed away. I'll read it to you again, verse 6 and 7. But worthless men are like thorns that are thrown away. For they cannot be taken with the hand. But the man who touches them arms himself with iron and the shaft of a spear, and they are utterly consumed with fire. See, the hard reality is that this kingdom that is coming involves both restoration, a return to Eden, and destruction, salvation, and judgment. Jesus puts it this way, In Matthew chapter 13, verse 40. 
Just as the weeds are gathered and burned with fire, so will it be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send His angels, and they will gather out of His kingdom all causes of sin and all lawbreakers, and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their Father. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. And so number three in your notes, if you haven't written it already, write this. The kingdom is exclusive. The kingdom is certain. The kingdom is perfect. The kingdom is exclusive. John chapter 14, verse 6. Chapter 14 something I often preach at funerals. In the beginning it says, let not your hearts be troubled. You get down to chapter, or you get down to verse 6, and Jesus just lays out the exclusivity of the gospel very clearly when he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Now think about that. When we hear those words, what exactly Jesus is saying? He's saying, I am the way. So first of all, he's made a way for us to be made right with God. He didn't have to. We don't deserve it. We are all sinners in here. We have committed treason against the Most High King. Treason in our own country results in death. How much more should we be judged for treason against the God of the universe who's in heaven and does whatever he pleases? So we do not deserve salvation, but praise God, that He has made a way. And Jesus is that way. But Jesus is also saying, I am the only way. He says, I am the way. Singular. I am the way. The truth. Singular. The life. Singular. He's not saying, I am a way. He's saying, I am the way. And so there's no, he's saying there's no other way. This is it. I've made a way for you. But I am the only way. There's no other way. There's no other ultimate truth. There's no other eternal life. I am the way, the truth, and the life. The only way, truth, and life. And this is something that the world struggles with mightily. Like, no one really struggles with spirituality. We can talk about spiritual things. We can talk about prayer. We can talk about supernatural. We can talk about healings. We can talk about all kinds of different things. But the world struggles with exclusivity. That one religion is right and all the others are wrong. That one sacred scripture is right and all the others are wrong. That one path to God is right and all the others are wrong. They struggle with an exclusive claim. But friends, it's these people who Jesus came to save. Some of us in this room were these people. And Jesus rescued us. And so people who would argue in those ways, listen, they're not our enemies. We're not to be mean-spirited towards them. We're not to not love those of other religions. They're just blind. 
We're not to not love people who, you know, would argue in these ways. We are to love them. But we love them in a way that is truthful and tells them the truth about Christ because He is the only way. That's what He says. And people are like, no, 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 no. That is so arrogant for you to insist that your religion is right and every other one is wrong and try to convert people to your religion. That is so arrogant. Because he'll say, in reality, each religion sees part of spiritual truth. But none can see the whole truth. And then they'll illustrate it with the classic example of blind men and the elephant. And so here's the way sometimes they'll roll it out. They'll say something like, well, you know, so it's like someone who took one philosophy class. Right? Like Vody Balkum talks about, if you've taken one philosophy class, you should not be allowed to speak. That's why I took two. <laughs> but this is the way they'll trot out sometimes blind men and the elephant. And several blind men were walking along and they happened upon an elephant. That allowed them to touch it. Now, just immediately, a couple of issues here. One, either there is an elephant walking around, like somebody's played Jumanji and elephants are out and somebody's walking, they walk up to it. Either you've got that or you've got several blind men who are alone walking through Africa. That, neither one's probably the greatest idea That's how they started. Several blind men were walking along and happened upon an elephant that allowed them to touch it. Okay. That's what's going on. All right. And so then they say, they find the elephant, they touch it, they feel it, and one guy says, hey, man, this, this, is, this is long and, and flexible like a snake as he's touching its trunk. And then another one says, no, 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 he, he touches its leg. And he says, no, 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 it's, it's thick and round like, like a tree trunk. And another one touches its side and goes, no, it's large and it's, and it's flat. And so they argue each man could only feel part of the elephant. None could envision the entire thing. And so they likewise infer then that all religions of the world are like that. They can only see part of the picture. None of them can envision the whole thing. <clears throat> but do you see what they're doing when they trot this out? They are speaking from a position of omniscience. They're saying no religion can see the whole thing, but I can. I can see that it's an elephant. Y'all are all blind and only can see little parts. But man, I, I've got it all. Everyone else is wrong. I'm smarter than everyone. I can see. So now who's arrogant? And further, they're saying you can't make an absolute exclusive claim. But in doing that, they're making an absolute exclusive claim. So it's, y'all can't do that, but I can because I'm smarter than you. 
And so they're doing exactly what they are forbidding. You guys are all a bunch of idiots. You only see part of the elephant, but I'm enlightened. I can see this whole thing. And so again, they're doing exactly what they're forbidding. It's kind of like the people who would speak of tolerance, but then be absolutely intolerant of any other's viewpoint. So Tim Keller sums it up well like this. He says, it's no more narrow to claim that one religion is right than to claim that one way to think about all religions, namely that they're all equal, is right. We are all exclusive in our beliefs about religion, but in different ways. And so Jesus is saying, I am the way. Okay, God's made a way. He didn't have to, but he did. And I am the way, but I am the only way. And so listen to me, every other religion on the planet is false. I'm not being a hater. I'm just telling you what Jesus said. There's only one way. This is what we call the exclusivity of the gospel. And God's kingdom is exclusive. But what is so remarkable then, this is what I want you to hear, what is so remarkable is how inclusive this exclusive kingdom is. Because yes, there is only one way to be made right with God, and that's through faith in Jesus. But no one who will simply repent and believe will be kept out of the kingdom. Like there's plenty of room. The doors are open. So there is no person who would simply repent and believe who would be excluded. No one. So there is no people or peoples who would be excluded from the saving work of Jesus on the basis of race or gender or background or location or status or sins you've committed or things that have been done to you. No one. Okay, the hope of the gospel is totally inclusive of all people, of all times, in all places, who will simply repent and believe in the finished work of Christ. Okay, the dividing line is belief or not belief. That's it. That's the dividing line. Not your culture, not your background, not the religion you grew up in, not your morality, not your sexuality. Those things might, some of those might flow out of the gospel, but they are not prerequisites to it. They are responses to the gospel, not prerequisites. And so listen to me, there is only one way. And Jesus is that way. But he's that way for anyone. Anyone who will repent and believe, even for you today. And so wherever you're at, Jesus is the way. He's the truth. He's the life. No one comes to the Father except through Him. And anyone who comes to the Father through Him comes in. He's the way, the truth, the life eternally and right now. And his kingdom is certain. It will come. And it will be perfect. And there's plenty of room. And so believers in here, take hope. The kingdom is coming. It is certain it will be better than you can imagine. New heavens, new earth, 
All things made new, sin over, death over, with Christ forever. And then non-Christian. Repent and believe. Jesus is the way. He made a way. Take it. He says, I will take your broken life. I will give you my perfect life. That is a trade worth taking. And so would you trust him? His kingdom is coming. Would you trust him? Let's pray. Father, we praise you that your kingdom is coming. That it is certain. That it is unshakable. And that it is the hope that is kept in heaven by you for us. We have this inheritance. And we long for that day when you will dwell with us. And you will wipe away our tears and our sorrows. And the former things will pass away. And behold, you will make all things new. Come, Lord Jesus, come. But Father, we know that you delay in patience and love. Allowing time for more people to come. And so, Father, I pray if there is someone in this room who has not trusted you by faith, that you would stir in their hearts today. That you would become, as we often put it, a pebble in their shoe that they can't ignore. The gospel would just bother them and bother them. This exclusive claim that you are the way, the truth, and the life, and that no one comes to the Father except through you would be a pebble. That bothers them until they take the time to examine that pebble. And that you would grant them faith to believe. And they would see your gospel. That you came, Jesus, and you lived the perfect life they did not, that I have not. And you died the death that they deserved and that I deserve. And you rose again to give them the gift and give me the gift that we could not earn. Forgiveness. You took our sin. You gave us your righteousness. And in that exchange, we're made right with God. But we have to take hold. And so I pray, Father, that I would take hold. And I pray, Father, that you would fill believers with hope and the certainty of your word the certainty of all your promises all of which find their yes in jesus that's we ask this in christ's name amen